So, Father God, we thank you. We thank you from looking down from on high upon each one of us. Unworthy as we are, you are holy, God, and we praise you. And we ask, God, that you would work in each one of our lives this morning. We pray that you would speak to each one of us exactly in the way that we need to be spoken to, according to your will, not ours, God. We pray that you will give us the strength that we we need to have to make it through our daily lives, God, to pursue you and to worship you. We thank you for the privilege to worship you, God. We pray, God, that you would forgive us and continue to forgive us and give us a spirit of forgiveness because you first forgave us. God, we thank you that in all of the circumstances that we go through in life, that you give us the strength to endure, that you give us the courage and the way out when it comes to trials. Pray, God, that you would protect us. Continue to walk with us. And we pray, God, that you will receive all the glory that we will recognize that it's only in your power that anything happens, God. For the sake of your kingdom, it's in your name we pray. Amen. So as you just heard, Jesus taught us to pray. It's not always in the specific words that Jesus taught us to pray, but I actually just prayed the Lord's Prayer with you. Some of you may have realized that. But that's what we just did as a church. You know, we've been in our sermon series over the past several weeks and looking at the Lord's Prayer. And I don't know about you, but, but hopefully your prayer time has been sweeter with God. Hopefully you've been having some intimate times with the Lord. I know that past, last week, Pastor John came and he spoke to you about knowing how God always provides and how God always gives you the strength to endure the hardships that we find ourselves in in life, that, that God is in fact not the evil one, God is not the tempter, but God always provides for us. Over the past several weeks, we've looked at God through the Lord's Prayer. We've seen that He is our Father. He is our Abba. He is our Daddy, which is an intimate name for us to call God. As we say, our Father in Heaven, Abba. Hallowed be Your name. He is Yahweh. He is righteous. He is goodness. He is God. He is our Savior. We learned about the phrase, Your kingdom come. Your will be done. You see, this here on earth, we oftentimes look at this as a separate place than heaven. And while the two are very different, this is still the kingdom of God. Where we dwell now is God's. Satan is turned loose in it. The tempter goes out and he tries to destroy it. But make no mistake of whose domain this kingdom's is. It's the king's. He is our king. And it's not for our will, as we talked about how sometimes the will that God has for us may lead us into places that are not comfortable. It may lead us into places that are very comfortable. But as we heard last week, God will never put us in a circumstance or situation that he will not provide a way out for us. I love, there's a book that I'm reading right now called What Are You So Afraid Of? by David Jeremiah. And in this book, he talks about how in the very nature of God, God is obligated to see us through 
trials and tribulations in our lives. God does not abandon us, as we heard last week. God loves us so much that he sent Jesus to die for us. And as he reminds us in the Lord's Prayer that we are to daily forgive because we were first forgiven. And the only way that we can do that is by remembering, as we learned, that that God is our sustenance. That God will give us our daily bread. You've got to think about the, the children of Israel wandering around in the desert for 40 years. And for 40 years, God delivered manna to their doorstep. God provided. And so we were reminded through the story, through this, this telling of the Lord's Prayer, that God is our provider. That it is His kingdom. That we are forgiven and therefore we should forgive. And that He will never abandon us. But if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to look at Matthew 6 right now. Verse 13. Because in Matthew 6, verse 13, we find ourselves coming to the end of the Lord's Prayer. If you remember, there was two questions. I I told you there's two questions I get a lot from people about the Lord's Prayer. The first one was, why do some people say debtors and some people say trespasses? That was an easy enough one to answer, wasn't it? Well, the next question I get seems to be a little more complicated. Because you see, as we pray the Lord's Prayer aloud, we look at the Scripture and we see in verse 13, it says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Done. Did anybody ever ask this question? Did you ever think about this? When the Lord's Prayer ends in verse 13, did somewhere along the line we as Christians decide that we needed to enhance the words of Jesus and add a whole sentence at the end of that? Because if you think about it, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we don't stop there as a church. We continue on with, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Is that arrogant of us to think that we needed to add to the way that Jesus taught us to pray? Some of you are thinking, I've never had that question before. Thanks a lot for ruining the Bible, Jamie. It's a very complicated question that's actually very simple to answer. I like when people come to me with these types of questions because this one's actually quite simple. You see, there's a section of of, of the Bible that comes out of 1 Chronicles. If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to open there right now. 1 Chronicles chapter 29. This portion of the Lord's Prayer is known as the doxology. And so when you hear me refer to the doxology, I'm not referring to the song that we sometimes sing after, after we take up the tithes and offering. I'm going to be referring to this specific section of the Lord's Prayer. It's known as the doxology. It comes from us from 1 Chronicles 29, 10 through 13. And so let me give you a little background on what's taking place right now. I know that there's a lot of you out there that think that the church exists and it has this secret bank account somewhere in the pits of the earth where it just kind of pools money from and everything just happens, right? No, that's not how it works. In fact, God tells us many times that we are the people of God and it's through us that he is going to reveal himself to the world. It's through us that, that he will speak the gospel message. And so back in Israel, uh, this is taking place where there's no temple yet. 
The temple was the dwelling place of the Lord. It's where the people went to worship God, and it just wasn't there yet. And so David calls his church together for what I'm going to call the greatest Old Testament building campaign the church has ever seen. Because what needs to happen is, is in order for the church to function, there has to be resources. And, and if you remember, one of the things we say when we take up our tithes and offerings, we say it all belongs to God anyway. And so David makes this grand speech to the people of Israel. He says, look, we want to build a house of the Lord. And he puts his money where his mouth is because David puts on the line his wealth, his treasure, his, his wood, his steel, his, well, they didn't have, not steel, but his iron and his gold. And he says to the, the people of Israel, he says, won't you bring back a portion of what God has given to you so that we can make this church, we can make this dwelling place for God? And so it's a building campaign. It's, it's literally David saying, we want to build a church. And this chapter, this section of the Bible, is all about the incredible response of God's people. Because when David put the challenge out there, let's build the temple for the Lord, the nation of Israel showed up in an amazing way. And they brought forth their tithes, their offerings, their gifts. They brought forth an amazing response to the Lord. Not because of they wanted to say, look how good we are. Not for Israel's glory, but because they wanted to glorify God by using what he had given to them to bless the Lord. All that to say... This is David's response to that incredibly divine moment when they came to the realization that they were going to hit their goal, that they were going to be able to do this for God. David says this in verse 10. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, the whole church had gathered. Praise be to you, O Lord, God of Father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you and you are the ruler of all things. And your hands are strength and power to exalt and to give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are aliens and strangers in your sight, as well as all our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. Our Lord, our God, as, far, as for all this, this is abundance that we have provided for building your temple for your holy name. It comes from your hand, and it all belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things have I given willingly and with honest intent. And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. O Lord God of our father Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever. And keep their hearts loyal to you. You see, God delights in a heart that recognizes where the glory, where the power, and where the honor go. God delights in a heart of integrity. 
And so as we hear that prayer of David, he's crying out to God and he's saying, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you. To you be the glory because it is your power and it is for your kingdom forever and ever. So when we look at the doxology of the Lord's Prayer, the answer is very simple. Nobody thought the words of Jesus Christ needed to be enhanced because, you see, this passage out of 1 Chronicle became a very famous prayer to the Israelites. And so somewhere between the 1st and 2nd century, the church decided to use the doxology as a way of bringing the Lord's Prayer to an end. Because as you see in Jesus' prayer, he leaves it pretty open-ended, which Brother Lawrence makes reference to and says that each one of us should live our lives as a prayer never-ending. But in 1 Chronicles, we read this beautiful doxology that David gives. And somewhere along the line in the history of the church, we've included it in our liturgy. And when you think about those words, for the kingdom, the power, and the glory... When we look at the Lord's Prayer, and when we walk back through the Lord's Prayer, really all that that doxology is, is a summary of all the things that Christ has said. And so as the church moved on, the doxology became a natural, natural conclusion in the liturgy about our amazing God. For thine is the kingdom. It is his kingdom, as we've talked about already, as Jesus demonstrated to us. It's his power. And it's his glory forever and ever. Now, as we think about that, for the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever, what does that look like to you? If someone were to say to you, I want to instill upon you the kingdom, the power, and the glory, we think of grandeur, we think of majesty. But you see, what I love about God, what I love about Jesus What I love about Palm Sunday is the fact that we have a backwards king. I don't know if if we're getting it wrong or Jesus is getting it wrong, but somebody's getting it wrong. And my money's not on you. Because you see, the way that the kingdom of God operates is so backwards. When you think about Palm Sunday, if you have your Bibles, the story of Palm Sunday that we're going to be looking at is in Luke 19, but I'm going to first jump to Zechariah 9.9. But when you think about the story of Palm Sunday, here, let me paint a picture for you. The nation of Israel is expecting a savior. There's a group of pilgrims who have made their way into town who've talked about the fact that they've seen this guy. His name's Jesus. He actually brought a guy named Lazarus back from the dead. He's claiming to be the son of God, and he's got to be the son of God. So before Jesus enters town, there's stories beginning to spread. The hype is beginning to grow. The bandwagon is collecting people. So there's this buildup. There's this expectation that Israel's going to be delivered. And you see, we've talked about it before, Israel had this mindset of Jesus General Patton coming down from heaven. He was going to smite the Romans. He was going to set us free. He was going to be our political savior. He was going to fix all the problems between the two parties in Israel right now. And he was going to make everything right. But that's not the way a backwards king works. Because you see, when Jesus came to the people on Palm Sunday, when he began his processional into town, it demonstrated something very different 
Something that for some of Israel was very disappointing. But for all of us, rocked our worlds. Because you see, Israel had a mindset that the kingdom that was being discussed here was simply Israel. But the king that was about to ride into town was not just their savior, but he was your savior as well. Isn't that good? If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Zechariah 9, 9 with me. There was these things, these prophecies that would happen that all throughout the Old Testament, people would speak about the coming Savior, the coming King. And if you're Israel and and you think about the prophecies and you think back to all that has been said, it says this in Zechariah 9, 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your King comes to you, having salvation. Now, as somebody who's hoping for a Savior, that's a pretty triumphant start to that, right? You're thinking, yeah, that's right, we're going to have a Savior. But then it, then it continues like this. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey. I mean, can you imagine if you're in a locker room before a football game and your coach is like, all right, guys, let's do this. Gentle and riding on a donkey doesn't exactly scream triumphant to us, does it? Do you know the symbolism of a donkey? Did you know that All throughout history, you've never seen a statue of a man on on a horse reared back or on a donkey reared back, have you? You've never seen Stonewall Jackson's memorial with him on a donkey, have you? You didn't didn't see all the monuments in Washington, D.C. There's no, no Dominic the donkey anywhere. The reason that is is because, see, the donkey represented something very different than the horse. In fact, to be caught dead on a, on a donkey as a king was basically inviting another nation to come and destroy you. Because you see, the, the horse, the war horse, when a king rode on a horse, it sent a message to the people that they knew war was coming, something was happening, our king wasn't lazy, he was, he was going to get on up and he was going to do something. And so when the king was on the horse, it was a triumphant strut of look at the power, look at the majesty of our king come riding in on the horse coming to take his place at the throne. But that's not how Jesus comes into town. Jesus comes into town, as it tells us in Zechariah 9.9, as a prophecy about how the Savior is going to come. So you can imagine Israel was not excited to hear this news, that their Savior was going to come riding into town on a donkey. By the way, the donkey is a symbol of peace. It's a symbol of humility. And so as Israel felt oppressed by the Roman Empire, for them to be told that our king is going to come in on a donkey, now, you know what, this must be one of those scriptures we don't don't understand. It's amazing. It's amazing. Hundreds of years before this was written. Then we turn to Luke 19. You ready for me to blow your socks off? This is fantastic. Luke 19. We're going to start in chapter or verse 28. Jesus had spoken to some folks about some things, and it says this in your Bible. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, and as he approached Bethpage and Bethany, at the hill called the Mount of Olives. It's interesting how quite a bit started there ends there as well. He sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt, a donkey, tied up there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. Now, if someone was busting into your car and said, don't worry about it, the mayor wants it. 
your reaction might not be that great. But you've got to remember the words of the, of, of the Bible, of the Old Testament, are tattooed on the hearts of the people. And so when they go and they say to this woman, you know, this, it actually happens. They go to this woman and they say, um, excuse me, uh, they replied, okay, 32. Those who were sent ahead, they found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner asked them, hey, what are you, what are you untying my donkey? They replied, the Lord needs it. Now, this word of Zechariah 9.9 is tattooed on the hearts of the people. When that woman heard that, or whoever that owner was, when that person heard that, their reaction had to be, because for that to happen, for that to take place, the Lord needs it, a donkey. They knew what that meant, that their savior was here, their political champion, their warrior, their, their Jesus general was here. And word began to spread like wildfire. When they came near to the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to joyfully, excuse me, they replied, the Lord needs it. They got the donkey. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. It even says in Matthew that they cut down palm branches. So the story continues as, as he shows up in town, the people begin to spread their garments on the ground as they would for a king because they're recognizing this man has power. He healed Lazarus from the dead. All these people here have seen it. People are talking about it. They cut down branches off the trees and they roll out the Old Testament red carpet for Jesus. And he begins to walk. The people began to praise When they came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to joyfully praise God in a loud voice for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, let me stop there for a minute. The King is being declared by all the people. The Savior is being declared by all the people. For the Pharisees to publicly call him teacher is a public slap in the face. Because when they make that claim, teacher, they're denying him of who he's being said to be, of who he's saying he is. They're bringing him to an earthly level and they're laying siege to his, his divine claim. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to stop saying that stuff. You're not the son of God. You're not the king. I tell you, if they keep quiet, Jesus says, the stones will cry out. You know what's amazing about somebody who experiences Jesus? Is it should change you. When you have seen the king, when you've seen the power and the glory of the king, When you think about the kingdom of Jesus Christ, it should change you. Because in the presence of Jesus, if we don't cry out, the rocks will. To be in the presence of God is to be in the heart of worship. Do you know that's why we come together on Sunday mornings? It's not so we can all hear Brad. It's because if we have a changed heart for God, our our souls should be leaping to sing his praise. As Jesus points out, if they shut up, the rocks are going to do it. Which proves to us that if you can't sing, it's okay to worship. So whether you sound like Pavarotti or a dying duck, you're good. 
So sing on, dying ducks. Sing on. Because if you don't, the chairs will. Because when a person experiences the king, it changes your heart for worship. When you experience the power of the backwards king, the glory of the backwards king, it'll forever cause your heart to leap for joy. Jesus replied to them after that. In a lot of the different writings and commentaries I read, they paint this picture as Jesus looking around the crowd and seeing the people saying, Savior, God, King, they're chanting for him. And as Jesus looks around, it says this, as he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, and then he began to weep. Because this Sunday is very different than next Sunday. This Sunday is very different than Thursday. This Sunday is very different than Friday. Because today, the kingdom and the power and the glory rode into town humbly. The triumphant king, the savior that Israel wanted, was a war horse. But what they got was a humble, peaceful sacrifice. When Jesus rode into town riding on the back of the donkey, he was riding in as a peace offering, not between the people of this world, not to the little world that Israel had in mind, but he came in as a peace offering to stop the war between God and man. You want to talk about power. Jesus had the power to raise somebody from the dead. If he wanted to come in like Jesus Patton, he could have brought the tanks and the angels and everything with them, and he could have smote the earth in two seconds. He could have destroyed it all and started over. But he didn't. Because somebody with true power is merciful. I love the way the kingdom of God works. Because it's through humility that he came. Isn't it crazy that the kingdom of God functions in a way that the the first will be last and the last will be first? That it will be the weak that, that, that work with the strong? That it will be the poor that bless the rich? Jesus was the divine example of this concept because here the king rode into town peacefully. He rode into town on the back of a donkey, demonstrating, in my opinion, the true power of God. And on Good Friday, when those same people put him on a tree, when we crucified our Lord, he demonstrated his power again and he took upon him the sins of the world. And then on Easter Sunday, he demonstrates the most awesome of awesome that there is. And he rises from the dead. Forever giving you and I the opportunity to dwell in the kingdom. So when we look in the Lord's Prayer, and we look at that doxology, and we think about For thine is the kingdom, the glory, and the power. We should think about Palm Sunday. We should think about the backwards king. Because to Jesus, to God, power looks very different. To God, glory looks very different. He desires your heart. He desires your affection. He desires your love. And the kingdom looks very different. Because a lot of times our kingdoms, the mindset that we have about God simply isn't big enough. Because God's thinking about the whole thing 
As a church, we should pray for other churches because guess what? They're part of the same family. We are one. The kingdom is so much bigger than us. How is your perspective on these things? When you do things, do you do them for the glory of you or for God to receive the glory? When you do things, do you do things in your power or do you trust in the power of God to do things through you? Is your kingdom precedent in your, in your life or is God's kingdom take precedent? There's a story of a woman by the name of Mama Maggie Gobron. They call her the Mother Teresa of Cairo. Mama Maggie is a beautiful woman. She was a computer science teacher, professor, excuse me. She came from the middle to upper class in, in Egypt. And I want to say this real quick. When you're outside of North America, the, 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 the poor class and the rest of the classes, there is a catastrophic difference. It is tremendously a huge gap. And for Mama Maggie to be set up in that upper to middle class, she had her life was set. She could survive in the third world where she lived and, and really not do anything. She didn't have to care. But Mama Maggie decided one day because of her convictions with the Lord that she was going to sell everything that she had and she was going to take her children and her husband and they were going to move into the slums of Cairo. They moved into the slums of Cairo where she started a ministry called Stephen's Children where she takes care of all of those children that don't have a mom, that don't have a father. And she's become Mama Maggie to all the orphans in Egypt. It was said of Mama Maggie recently that she is the most powerful person or one of the most powerful people in the nation of Egypt. And what blows me away is she didn't come in riding a war horse. She didn't come in flashing her checkbook. She didn't come in wielding an army. She came with the simplistic message of the gospel of Jesus Christ because she understood the backwards king. First shall be last, the last shall be first. It will be the weak that bless the strong, and it will be the poor that bless the rich. What does glory look like for you? What does power look like for you? What does the kingdom look like for you? And what does it look like for God? Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you. We thank you for the way that you rode into town on Palm Sunday as our Savior, the Savior we needed, not the Savior we wanted. We thank you for the merciful and humble way that you did this. You didn't say, look at me, look at me. You simply got on a donkey and rode into town. So God, as we struggle this week to, to ask you to work in our lives as we think about the fact that this is the beginning of Holy Week, we pray that you would help our hearts and our minds to go every single day to think about what took place on Palm Sunday. What took place on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, on Thursday in that upper room, that horrible Friday, God, that beautiful Friday. Where did you go on Saturday? And what caused you to get up on Sunday? 
I don't think we'll ever understand you, Lord. And that's beautiful. Thank you for being the God of power. Thank you for being the God of glory and for giving us a place in your kingdom. In Jesus' name.